tonight's topic, it's a continuation of what we have been talking about from Tuesday and Wednesday. Before we, we launch into tonight's presentation, I'd like to invite you to please bow your heads with me as we have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, this evening as we open the Bible together, we pray that your spirit would be here. We ask that you would guide us and lead us into truth. And because this is a topic that has even caused some people to ultimately turn away from you, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. For we ask these things in Jesus' name we pray. Tonight I'm going to divide my subject into three sections. And these three sections are going to be answering three questions that I want to talk about hellfire with you on. The first question is, when is hell? According to the Bible, when is it? Is it going on right now? Is it in the past? Is it in the future? When is hell? Question number two, where is hell? Is it in the center of the earth? Is it on another planet? Is it a fourth or fifth dimension? Where is hell? And finally, question number three, how long is hell? Is it going to be through the eons of eternity? Has it always been burning? How long does hell last? Now, Something that we've covered in our seminar is a principle that I want to just remind you of. If something is true in the Bible, it's true throughout the whole Bible. Does that make sense? If something is true, you'll find it to be true from Genesis all the way to the end of the Bible. Do you remember that fence principle I shared with you? Do you remember that? If you find truth in the Bible, and there are some clear verses, and you know the Bible doesn't contradict itself. When you come to one of these hard-to-understand verses, don't make everything else in the Bible match the crooked one. Does that make sense? Not that any verse in the Bible is wrong, but we want to use the preponderance of clear evidence to establish Christian principles. And then when we look at verses that may be a little bit obscure, we want to bring those in harmony with what the rest of the Bible says. So, to begin, let's look at the words of Jesus as he speaks about when is hell. Here's Matthew 12, oh, sorry, Matthew 13, starting in verse 24. Please notice what the Bible says. Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. And while men slept, his enemy came and sowed what? Tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the what? The tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst not thou sow thy good seed in thy field? From whence then hath it tares? Said unto them, An enemy hath done this. The servant said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? But he said, Nay, lest while you gather up the tares, you root up also the wheat with them. Let both grow together until what time? The harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, gather ye together first the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. So there's the parable. Now, he answered and said unto them, this is a little bit later on in the chapter. He's going to explain what this means. He answered and said unto them, he that soweth the good seed is the son of man. The field is where? It's the world. The good seed, so, so the wheat, are the children of the kingdom. But the tares are who? The children of the wicked one. Can you see that? 
The enemy that sowed them is the devil. Now, please notice these next words. The harvest is when? Is the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. As therefore, the what? The tares. Now, let's review. What are the tares symbolic of? The wicked. As therefore, the tares are gathered and what? Burned in the fire. Now, please notice these next words. So shall it be when in the what? The end of the world. Please tell me, according to Jesus, the wicked are burned at what time? When? At the end of the world. That's what the Bible says. This is verse 41. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Now, I'm going to take you to the Old Testament, because the Bible's testimony about the destruction of the wicked is consistent. Please notice Malachi 4, verse 1. For behold, the day cometh. Notice the tense of that. It's future. That shall burn as an oven. And all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be what? Double. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. Now, please notice, when Malachi describes the destruction of the wicked, he says that that day is still what? It's coming. It's in the future, right? Here's 2 Peter 2, verse 9. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations. And to do what? Reserve the unjust. What's another word for the unjust? The wicked. To reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be what? Let's suppose that you reserve a table at a restaurant. Are you there at the restaurant yet? No, you're calling and you're asking them, save it for me until I get there. Does that make sense? The Bible says that the wicked are reserved for a certain date at which they will be punished. Does that make sense? So the point that 2 Peter 2.9 is telling us is that right now, the wicked are not being punished. If that's clear, can you say amen? Now, we looked at this passage earlier, but I want to re review with you this. When we talked about death, we looked at this verse. But Job 21 says almost the same thing that 2 Peter 2.9 says, but I want you to just notice the language of it. He says that the wicked is reserved to what day? The day of destruction. They shall be brought forth, that sounds like a resurrection, to the day of wrath. Then it says, who shall declare his way to his face? And who shall repay him what he hath done? Yet shall he be brought to the grave and shall remain where? So where are the wicked until the time that they're brought forth to be punished? Where are the wicked until that time? They're simply in the graves, unconscious, awaiting that second resurrection. Now, if you were with us on Wednesday night, we covered the thousand years. And when we covered this, we learned that at the end of the thousand years, Satan's circumstances change. Why? Because there's a second resurrection. The Bible says that he gathers this group together. He leads them into battle. And here's what happens when they go out to do battle. It says, and they, now again, this is speaking of the wicked, they went up on the breadth of the earth. And they compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city. And what happened? Fire came down from God out of heaven. And what did it do? It devoured them. Now, please note this. This takes place at the end of the 1,000 years. Are you with me? I want to put up a chart on the screen for you. This is what we covered on Wednesday night. At the second coming, there is the first resurrection. It's the resurrection of the righteous. 
When Jesus comes, the living saints who are alive will be caught up to meet Jesus in the air with the resurrected righteous dead. Does that make sense? And when, the, when Jesus comes, the wicked who are lost will be slain by the brightness of his coming. During the 1,000 years, Satan has no one here. He's stuck. He's just forced to look at the results of his rebellion. The saints are in heaven. They're not deciding who saved or lost. They have a chance to review why people were saved and why people were lost. At the end of the 1,000 years, there's a second resurrection. That resurrection is, is marked also by the descending of the new Jerusalem. When that comes down, the Bible says the wicked surround the city. When they try to take the city, the Bible says that fire destroys them. Now, please look closely. That fire that destroys the wicked at the end of the 1,000 years, that is the fires of hell, okay? And that's why the Bible calls it the second death. Now, how many times do you have to separately live in order to have a second death? How many times? At least two. Does that make sense? So everyone, no matter who you are, righteous or wicked, everybody lives twice because you live your life here and then you make it in one of two resurrections. Does that make sense? The Bible tells us that the wicked, after the thousand-year period, when they attempt to take the city, the Bible says that fire comes down from God out of heaven and it destroys them. It devours them. Now look closely. The next question we want to answer is where is hell? Revelation 20, verse 9. And they, this is speaking of the wicked, went up on the where? On the breadth of the earth. Now, where are the wicked when they attempt to take the city? Where are they? They're on planet earth. Does that make sense? Now, please don't miss this because the Bible is telling us that when the wicked are destroyed, they're on planet earth. Where else? The Bible tells us this in 2 Peter 3, verse 7. Look closely. But the heavens and the earth, which are now, which means the heavens, the, the, when it says heavens, by the way, I'm sure you know this, heavens in the Bible can refer to one of three places. It can refer to where God is, where the birds fly, or the sky. Does that make sense? So I think you understand, or I, I apologize, I apologize. Two, two of those are the same. Where God dwells, uh, where space is, okay, space, where the, the stars and the sun and all that, and then where the birds fly, our atmosphere. So when it says the heavens and the earth, this is talking about planet Earth. Does that make sense? Which are now, by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto what? Fire. So notice this. Where is the place that God is saving to destroy the wicked? Where is it? It's the heavens and the earth. Does that make sense? Against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Here's how Isaiah describes it. For it is the day of the Lord's vengeance and the year of the recompenses for the controversy of Zion. And the streams thereof shall be turned into what? Pitch, and the dust thereof into brimstone. And the land thereof shall become burning pitch. I don't know if you are familiar, but the Greeks had this special weapon. Did you ever hear of this thing called Greek fire? You can look it up. It was a true weapon that the Greeks possessed. It was a mixture of some substances. And when launched on arrows or thrown, it would burn even if it was put in water, it would keep burning. So one of the key ingredients of that, they still can't reproduce it. We lost that technology. But one of the key ingredients in it was pitch. And so this is interesting because when the Bible describes the earth and it becomes the place for the destruction of the wicked, 
everything turns like into something like pitch. It says that the land shall become like burning pitch. That's an alarming picture of this, this, this worldwide destruction. Now, the third question that we want to look at, how long is hell? We're going to divide this up into two sections. I want to talk to you first about what happens to the wicked, what ultimately happens to them. I'm going to go back to Malachi 4, and I want you to notice the language here. For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be what? Stubble. I'm going to come back to that. And the day that cometh shall do what? Burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. But unto you that fear my name shall the son of righteousness arise with healing in his wings. And you shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stalls. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be what? Ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. Now let's review something. Where is hell? Where does the destruction of the wicked take place? Where? On the earth. Now notice, God told his followers, he said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And then he said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit what? The earth. He didn't say, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit a spinning globe of fire that never goes out. No. He said that the meek will inherit the earth. Now, does it make sense that if hell, the destruction of the wicked takes place on planet earth, at some point, that fire has to go out? Does that make sense? And here's the description. It says that the wicked would be like ashes. Let's notice Isaiah 47 verse 14. Behold, they shall be as what? Stubble. Now, I'm going to pause here. I did a meeting in, in Kansas, uh, in the state of Kansas, in a little town called Goodland. It was on Highway, I think it's Interstate 80. It's on the border of Colorado. And one of the old timers there told me, you know, that part of Kansas, the western part of Kansas is just flat. And one of the old timers told me many years before before, you know, all this environmental concerns, when they harvested all of the wheat, you know what they did to the fields? Set them on fire. They said that the sound from the burning could be heard four or five miles away. It was so loud. When it's all done, the fields were empty. There was nothing left. Now, it's interesting. This analogy is being used for the wicked. Behold, they shall be a stubble. The fire shall burn them. They shall not deliver themselves from the power of the flame. But notice this. It says, when it's done, there shall not be a coal to warm at, nor fire to sit before it. When the fire is finished with its work, the Bible is telling us that it goes out. Does that make sense? Here's Psalms 37 verse 10. For yet a little while, and the wicked shall what? Not be. Yea, thou shalt diligently consider his place, and it shall not be. But the wicked shall perish, and the enemies of the Lord shall be as the fat of lambs. They shall consume into what? Into smoke shall they consume away. Have you ever cooked something on a hot skillet? Let's say you're cooking a piece of meat. And have you ever seen this? A little piece of fat. It breaks off. And what does it do? On a hot skillet, it dances around, gets smaller and smaller, and then what happens? It's gone. That's how the Bible describes the destruction of the wicked. As smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As wax melteth before the fire, so let the wicked perish 
at the presence of God. Now, tonight I want to talk to you about Satan. I want to show you how the Bible describes the destruction of Satan. And I want you to look closely. Many churches have the misconception that Satan is in charge of hell. Now, folks, I don't know if you've thought about this, but could you really trust Satan to be impartial? You know what I mean? So here's what the Bible says about Satan. Now, look closely. It says, son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of where? Tyrus. Now, when you first read this, it sounds like it's talking about the king of Tyrus, and it was. But as you go on, you'll discover that the language is unmistakably about someone else as well. Okay, this is called typology in scripture. But I want you to notice what it says. And say unto him, thus saith the Lord God, thou sealest up the sum, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Thou hast been in where? Eden, the garden of God. Now let's pause. I already know that this can no longer be talking about the king of Tyrus. You know why? Because in the garden of Eden, there were only two people, and the king of Tyrus wasn't there, right? It says, thus thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was thy covering, the sardius, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, the sapphire, and the emerald. Now, some of you are looking at that, and you're saying, wow, Satan was dazzlingly beautiful. Don't forget, his original name, Lucifer. Lucifer means the light bearer. And all of those gems, what were they for? They were designed to reflect the glory that he was able to bear in God's presence. Does that make sense? It goes on. The carbuncle and gold, the workmanship of thy tabrets and of thy pipes was prepared in thee in the day that thou was created. Now, here's what we know from this part. This part tells us that these, this creature that was made was designed to be musical. Can you see that? It says that the workmanship of his tabrets and pipes was prepared in him from the day that he was created. And then it says, thou art the anointed cherub. What's another word for cherub? It's an angel that covereth, and I have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the thrones, stones of fire. This was Satan's job. He was one of the covering angels, just like you see in the Ark of the Covenant. And then it says, thou was perfect in thy ways from the day that thou was created until iniquity was found in thee. Now look closely. By the multitude of thy merchandise, they have filled the midst of thee with violence, and thou hast sinned. Therefore, I will cast thee as profane out of the mountain of God, and I will destroy thee, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Thy heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. I will cast thee to the ground. I will lay thee before kings that they may behold thee. Thou hast defiled thy sanctuaries by the multitude of thine iniquities, by the iniquity of thy traffic. Therefore, will I bring forth a fire from the midst of thee. Now notice these next words. It shall what? Devour thee, and I will bring thee to what? Ashes upon the earth in the sight of all them that behold thee. Now let's review. Who's this being that we're talking about? It's Satan. It's an angel. It was dazzlingly beautiful. It was one of the covering angels. It was musical. This is Lucifer. Does that make sense? When Lucifer sinned, he was cast out of heaven. The Bible tells us that someday God will destroy Lucifer. But when he does that, the Bible tells us what happens. Number one, 
a fire will devour him. Now, let me pause right there. I, I like to eat, and I like some desserts especially. I like pies. I like apple pies. And let me tell you something. If you gave me a piece of apple pie, I would devour it. Does that make sense? Now, if I devour the pie, how much is left? Don't miss that. That's the same word that is used when it says that the fire comes down from God out of heaven in Revelation 20. It says the fire, it devours the wicked. That's the exact same language, okay? And then notice this. God says, I will bring thee to what? To ashes. And notice where this destruction, upon the earth. This is the same thing that we read about when we talked about Revelation chapter 20, verse 9. Now, remember, oh, by the way, and then it says, all they that know thee among the people shall be astonished at thee. Thou shalt be a terror, notice the last part, and never shalt thou be anymore. Can you say amen? Satan finally meets his end at the end of the thousand years when he's finally destroyed. And notice, the, the Bible intimates that people are watching this because remember, there's people inside of the city and they're looking out and they see the destruction of Satan as it takes place. When you go through the Bible, over and over and over and over, the Bible describes the destruction of the wicked as being the opposite of eternal life. Let me explain. Many churches today are teaching that no matter what, you will have eternal life. One version is just uncomfortable, but that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that ultimately the wicked are destroyed, they're annihilated. They will become as though they have never existed before. And one of the questions that I get asked, and uh, this is a tricky one, but one of the questions that I get asked is, how long do the wicked burn and suffer? I had, I had a person in one of my seminars that was divorced, and they seemed like they really wanted this to be a long time, you know. But anyway, um, I want to just tell you that this is how the Bible describes the destruction and punishment of the wicked. Notice what it says. And that servant, which knew his Lord's will and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he that knew not and did commit things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with what? Few stripes. Now, here's the principle. For unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall be much what? required, and to whom men have committed much, of him they will ask the more. What I read in Scripture is this. God does not hold everyone to the same accountability. When God gives a person light, that person is responsible for the light that they have received. Does that make sense? And so this is why Jesus, or sorry, Paul said, be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also what? So if by this criteria, who do you think will burn the longest in the destruction of the wicked? Who will burn the longest? Satan. Does that make sense? Because Satan was once one of the angels that stood in God's presence. He had the most light. And sinning against and rejecting that light, Satan will ultimately be punished the longest. Does that make sense? All right. Now, what does God do after the destruction of the wicked? Here's what the Bible says. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. There was no more sea. What does God do? He makes a new what? 
He makes a new world. And that's how the Bible describes that event. Now, many people have the idea that God is somehow uh, appeased, that he enjoys to see the wicked destroyed. But this is how the Bible describes God's character. For I have how much? No pleasure in the death of him that dieth, saith the Lord God. Wherefore, turn yourselves and live ye. Did you know that in Scripture, the destruction of the wicked is regarded, it's called God's strange act. It's as though this is something that he doesn't want to do, but he's forced to do it to keep the universe free from sin. It's Satan that really deceived mankind with this statement, you will not die. That idea still echoes throughout many, many religions, including Christianity. You know, the Bible is clear that the wages of sin is what? Death. Now, please don't miss this. The gift of God is eternal life, right? But the wages of sin is the opposite of eternal life. It's not going to be eternal life, but, you know, in flames, it is annihilation or destruction. But I know that there are some of you that know your Bibles well, and you're saying to me, I know the Bible talks about an eternal fire. It sure does. Let's look at this. Even as the cities, I'm sorry, even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of what? Okay, let's pause. According to the Bible, did God punish Sodom and Gomorrah with eternal fire, yes or no? That's what it says. Look closely. I'm not, I'm not construing anything on it. That's just what it says. But I want you to notice that when the Bible describes the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, it uses the term eternal fire. But in 2 Peter 2.6, here's what the Bible says ultimately happens to these cities. Turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into what? So you don't even have to be like a Middle East expert to know that Sodom and Gomorrah are not burning anymore. Does that make sense? That eternal fire is not a fire that just never goes out. It can also be a fire that has an effect that lasts forever. Does that make sense? Here's another verse that has confused people. And these shall go away into what? Everlasting punishment. Now, there's a difference. Everlasting punishment is a punishment that's effects are lasting forever. But it's not the same thing as everlasting punishing. Do you notice the difference? That would be completely different. And by the way, did you notice in our court systems, which are, I don't say they're without flaw, but in our court system, the, the, um, the penalty is commensurate to the crime. Does that make sense? So when a jury awards, you know, punitive damages, they always, you know, it's commensurate to what the person suffered and went through, right? How could it be that someone could live a life of 70 to 80 years and then end up burning for eternity when they've only had 70 to 80 years to commit sin? Does it make sense? It's not even, even in our own justice system, it doesn't make sense that someone would have to suffer throughout eternity just for the lives that they've lived for 70 to 80 years. Now, there is a verse that says that the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. Do you remember that analogy I used about the fence? Remember that? 
So let's look at some verses that talk about forever in the Bible. I want you to notice what it says. This is Jonah. Jonah wrote this about his sea voyage in the whale. He said, I went down to the bottoms of the mountains. The earth with her bars was about me how long? Forever. Yet hast thou brought up my life from corruption, O Lord my God. Let me ask you a question. How long was Jonah in the belly of the whale? How long? Three days, three nights. Now, do you realize that even though it was that short, Jonah said that when he was down there, it was how long? That's what Jonah said. But that term forever, I mean, it must have seemed like forever. If you're claustrophobic and you don't like to be in wet, damp places, that must have been a nightmare. And plus, it was dark too, right? But Jonah said it was forever. It was only three days and three nights. Here's another verse. Now, this is going to sound strange, but God had these laws in the book of Exodus that governed the use of slaves. Now, I know this sounds strange, but there was a spiritual lesson in this, okay? Anyway, this is what the, this is what the laws were if a slave wanted to remain with his master. Then his master shall bring him unto the judges. He shall also bring him to the door or unto the doorpost. And his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall serve him how long? Now, let's pause for a moment. You know what that means. What is it saying when it says forever? How long is that? Until he dies. Does that make sense? That's what it meant. Here's what Hannah said about her son Samuel. Hannah went not up, for she said unto her husband, I will not go up until the child be weaned. And then I will bring him that he may appear before the Lord and there abide how long? Forever. Now, Hannah knew what this meant because later she said, therefore also I have lent him to the Lord as long as he what? Liveth, he shall be lent to the Lord and he worshiped the Lord there. Have you ever been to the airport? And these days, it's bad. Like, not only is, you know, after the 9-11, you know, the security got really beefed up, but now with COVID and the whole testing that they do, it goes I mean, you, you can get to the airport, and, you know, on international flights now, they're telling you, come two hours early. Um, I, I had to fly to, or I was flying to Africa a few months back, and they asked me to come three hours early, okay? Here's what's interesting. You get in the line, man, it goes so slow, you know? It seems like it just goes around. I went to Washington, Dulles one time. The, the security line went like this and like this. And let me tell you, by the time you get through to the gate, it seems like you've been waiting forever, doesn't it? When we use the word forever, even in our modern vernacular, the word forever does not mean a period without an end always. In fact, in the original language, the word uh, olam in Hebrew, which is translated forever, when it applies to humans, it refers to all the days of their life. That's the same in Greek, ionos. It simply means Duration, but not undefined, not endless, okay? Did you know that in the United States, less and less people are believing in hell? I think this article said one out of every five Christians believes in hell. But the truth is that this immortality of the soul idea, more and more people are beginning to realize that this is not biblical. This is not in the Bible, a prominent Anglican scholar, John Stott, I have a lot of his books. John Stott, he created like kind of an uproar in his church when he wrote a book which basically said that according to the Bible, the wicked are destroyed and annihilated. They don't burn forever. He's not the only one. There was another 
There's another famous Baptist, um, Edward Fudge. And um, he wrote this book called The Fire That Consumes. That's, that's, by the way, this is a documentary on Netflix. There are Baptists, Baptists, faithful Baptist believers that realize that fi the fires of hell don't burn forever. Did you notice that there are many things that paganism has left us as a legacy that in Christianity we don't even think twice about? Christmas, Easter, eternal hellfire, Sunday worship, but the immortality of the soul, this is something that is really from paganism. This is a concept that is not found in Scripture. And you know, the Bible is designed like a set of dominoes. If you remove one, if you knock one over, every other doctrine is affected. Does that make sense? Because if man's soul is immortal, then guess what? When he's punished, he has to burn how long? Forever. That just naturally follows, right? So some of you are also thinking, wait a minute, isn't there a story about the rich man and Lazarus? I want to share this story with you tonight, and I want you to notice what Jesus was trying to teach in this parable. Here's what Jesus said. Now, before I read this to you, I want to just tell you two things that you need to know about this. Number one, Jesus did not write this story. You can go back. You can check me on this. I'm, I know I'm being recorded. A Google search will tell you that originally this story existed in Greek mythology. Jesus took the story, but he modified it a little bit. How? He changed the name of one of the characters to Lazarus. Now, you need to know that if you read the Bible in its chronological order, especially the Gospels, Jesus told this story before he raised Lazarus. Does that make sense? So with that understanding, let's notice what the Bible says. There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at his gate full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by angels into where? Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell, he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father, Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house, for I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham said unto him, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. But he said, nay, Father Abraham, now look, look at this, this is important, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto him, if they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Okay, so first question we have to ask ourselves is, what was this parable trying to teach? Well, one of the first points that this parable was designed to, sh to show 
is that riches does not always mean that God is happy with you. So did you know that in Jesus' day, there was this belief that if you were wealthy, that means that God was happy with you. And that belief even exists to this very day. Now, I don't know if you've thought about this, but in Christianity, there has been a current of what some theologians would call the prosperity gospel, which basically means if you believe it and you claim it, it's yours, right? So that big house, that, that, that six-figure salary, all of that can be yours. All you have to do is have enough faith, right? But the Bible doesn't actually teach that. And unfortunately, this parable was designed to show that riches are not a sign that God is happy with you. Number two, the opposite of that was also to be learned from this story, that poverty is not always a sign of God's displeasure. In the parable, who was saved, the rich man or Lazarus? Lazarus was saved, right? The third point is very important as well. Did you notice that Abraham says to the rich man, there is a great gulf fixed between us so that we can't go to you, you can't come to us. Now, let me point something out. This story is not, it was not made up entirely by Jesus. This was a popular Greek myth that existed at that time. What's interesting is that if you look at the details, there are some things that stand out as cannot be literal. For example, does the Bible teach that every saved person goes to Abraham's bosom. Is that what it teaches? No. You know, if, as soon as you say, well, Abraham's bosom, that means what you're saying is it's not literal, it's a symbolic explanation. Does that make sense? By the way, if someone was in hell, would dipping your finger in water and touching their tongue, would that give any relief? No. You would want the Niagara Falls at that point, wouldn't you? None of that is a literal description. This is, again, a simply a figurative story that Jesus didn't try to teach about the afterlife, he used to try to teach the, the principles about wealth, about poverty, also that there are no second chances. But here's the most important lesson. Did you notice that the last sentence that Abraham says is, they would not believe even if someone rose from the dead. Do you remember that? Now, I know that there are some of you that, that are thinking, man, you know what, if I saw you know, someone raised from the, I would know. You know what? Jesus, a few, I don't want to say weeks, but not long after this, he raised someone from the dead named Lazarus. And guess what? All those priests, they saw that, and they were more determined than ever to kill Jesus. Now, I want you to understand this principle as how it applies to us today. A number of years ago, I held a seminar in a little town in Arkansas called Russellville. It's on the northwest part of it. Beautiful little town. And uh, while I was there, I had a man that was walking to my seminar. This was in the month of October, November. His name was Virgil, and Virgil was walking about a quarter of a mile. He was in his 70s, but he'd walk a quarter of a mile to the hall where I was holding the meetings every night. One day when I was off, I decided to, that I would go visit him. So I, I dropped in his place, and we sat, and we chatted. I noticed, you know, all the handouts that I give out? I noticed that he had been going through the handouts. And uh, I, I said to him, Virgil, what's, what's new for you? What have you learned in the seminar that you never heard before? He said, I learned about the Sabbath. I never knew that. I said, wow. I said, are you convinced? Is, does it make sense? He said, sure, it's in the Bible. I can see it. I said, Virgil, if it's clear for you, I said, what are you going to do about it? And he said, well, you know, I've been praying about it. 
And he said, the Holy Spirit hasn't told me yet that I need to keep it. I kind of was a little bit confused. I thought if people see it, why, you know, what, what would they need to hear? You know? And then I realized many people are like that, like the story of the rich man and Lazarus. They are asking God for like some kind of miracle to show them what he wants them to do. But you know what God is saying? God is saying, look, I've given you the Bible. If you can't follow and accept what the Bible says, it wouldn't make any difference if I wrote in letters of fire in neon pyrotechnic color in the sky with, you know, <laughs> like, like, like lightning bolts and all of this. It wouldn't make any difference if you're not willing to follow what the Bible says plainly. Does that make sense? Folks, I want to challenge you because when we look at the Bible, God gives us these words because this is his way of communicating to us. Does that make sense? Don't expect a million dollars or someone to come from the dead or, or, or letters in the sky. God is speaking to us through his word. Amen? Now, I want to I close by just clarifying what we've covered about hell. Number one, nobody's in hell today. When does hell take place? At the end of the thousand years, at the end of the millennium. Isn't that right? And, okay, so it's at the end of the millennium. Hell is on the earth. It's not in the center of the earth. It's not on another planet. It's not in another dimension. Not only that, but God is in charge of hell. The devil is the one that gets thrown into the lake of fire, right? And Satan himself will ultimately be destroyed. You know, I used to live in Oklahoma. And while I was living there, I actually had, I actually saw these huge ranches. And, um, probably akin to what Western Pennsylvania might have in some of the more rural areas. But one, in one particular farm a number of years ago, they had this unique outbreak. So here's, here's what they were having going on. These sheep were in, in pastures that were covered by or fenced in by barbed wire. And some of these sheep, they would go up to the barbed wire and they would scratch their heads. But they'd scratch their head so hard that it would bleed. And then the next day, they were dead. They couldn't figure out what's going on. So they took these animals to the vet. Vet examined them, and they took them to another place, and they discovered that these sheep were infected with something called scrapies. Scrapies is the sheep version of mad cow disease. You know what that is? In humans, it's called Jakob Kreutzfeldt's disease. It's a disease that eats holes in your brain and it causes aggression and other memory and motor function related issues. But anyway, these sheep could not be used for anything else. You couldn't use them as fertilizer because the blood meal, that would ultimately be transmissible of this prion that caused this disease. So you know what they had to do? Really sad. They took bulldozers and they dug giant pits in the ground. And after they did that, they put, they killed, they took biohazard seed. I know this sounds crazy, but they took the sheep, they slaughtered them, and then they poured diesel all over them, and they set them on fire. After they burned their carcasses, then they covered them up, never to be touched again. When I heard that story, I thought, you know, this is kind of what God is dealing with when he deals with sin. Sin is a ravaging disease, and it causes death. God's goal is to get rid of sin. Does that make sense? And, you know, let's say that this is sin right here. 
God's goal is to eliminate it. But if someone chooses to hold on to sin, when the final judgment ends, God has no choice. He doesn't want to get rid of them, but he has no choice but to destroy them with the sin which they choose to hold on to. Does that make sense? Friends, there is a fountain filled with blood that's drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood, they lose all their guilty stains. Can you say amen to that? In other words, God has opened a way by which we can be cleansed, we can be free. And I want you to know, God doesn't delight in the destruction of the wicked. It's his strange act. All his goal is, is to get rid of sin in this universe once and for all. That's all he wants to do. As we close tonight, I want to invite you to bow your heads with me as we pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that each of us tonight would take a moment to reflect on what we know of God and what we understand of his character through this subject of hellfire. Lord, I know that there are people that have actually become atheists, bitter atheists, because the thought that a God of love could burn an innocent baby that hasn't been baptized in the fires of hell throughout all eternity have made some question how God could even be a God of love. My prayer is that we could free ourselves from the deceptions of Satan, that we could understand your ultimate goal and your ultimate plan to save as many people as will accept Jesus and his sacrifice. This is my prayer. In Jesus' name we pray.